Welcome to Actors Talk. From beginning and maintaining an acting career, working with agents, audition tips, actors as producers and content creators, how the business is changing and what we can do to stay abreast of those changes, any topic that is pertinent to actors and other creatives involved in the business of acting is fair game. These topics and more are explored via in-depth interviews with emerging talent and seasoned pros from in front of and behind the camera on Actors Talk. Welcome, everybody, to Actors Talk. This is a podcast that invites you to come inside the acting business. My name is Tommy G. Kendrick. I am a SAG AFTRA member actor and have been since 1978. That means I'm old. <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy, oh boy, indeed it does. Uh, but I am the producer and host of our little digital get together here, and I want to thank you so much for joining me for this episode. If this is your first time, please go to ActorsTalkPodcast.com. If you are not there already, if you are there, you'll see under the podcast player on the website, you'll see a button that will take you to either iTunes or Stitcher. If you're an Android user, I really highly recommend the Stitcher app for uh, listening to podcasts. You can take it in your car, wherever. That's what I do. And And if you're an Apple user, of course, you probably are all clued into iTunes. So... Listen there, subscribe in either or both of those places, and please leave a review. That would help me a lot to help find new audience members if you do that. And also, that way you don't ever miss an episode. So, a lot of good interviews here for you actors, filmmakers, and other creatives who are interested in the movie business. And as always, all the episodes are free. So, uh, subscribe, look around, take what you want. And uh, I hope it means something good for you and and helps you out. That's what the content is here for. This episode of Actors Talk features an interview with a rather dynamic young filmmaker named Kyle Prohaska. I interviewed Kyle back in May of 2012 in episode 15. So you can find that episode at actorstalkpodcast.com slash 015 I believe, hopefully that's the right link. But Kyle is back to talk about his new film, his second film called Love Covers All. And I thought it would be really good to have him back because we talked about the film he first produced, Standing Firm. He produced and wrote, directed, produced that film when he was, I think, 19, 20 years old, around there. And that's really an impressive thing to pull off. And not only did he pull off the making of the film and getting it finished, but he really shepherded it through a distribution process that has been ongoing and took several years, but ultimately was very, very successful. So he has a lot to offer you other indie filmmakers who may be just starting out and want to look at somebody who's doing things the right way. And I would suggest that Kyle Prohaska is someone you could look to and see what he's doing. And maybe you can get some ideas of how you could proceed on your own filmmaker's journey. Love Covers All, that's the new film. And we'll be talking all about that. A lot of behind the scenes things that went on with the making and the development of the script and the film. And also we covered some things that will be of interest to actors about how Kyle runs a set, what he really wants in the atmosphere on a set. Also, 
information about doing videotaped auditions and how that played into this project. So there's a lot of information here, and it's a lot of fun, too. I hope Kyle is a really, really knowledgeable young filmmaker, and it's sort of interesting and exciting for me to see the growth between Standing Firm and Love Covers All, and there has been a lot of growth indeed, and we talk about that in the interview. So let's get to it. My interview with filmmaker Kyle Prohaska. Love covers all. October 7th, that's right around the corner, and that's when the DVD is widely available. Love covers all, coming October 7th. Here's my interview with Kyle Prohaska. Thanks a lot for being on Actors Talk, Kyle. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Catch people up a little bit. Just give a little background. Yeah, my first film was called Standing Firm, and my company's name is Praise Pictures. Standing Firm came out in 2010, August 24th. So it's been out a while, but it, it really went further, I think, than anybody expected, including me. So I was really blessed to be able to do another movie. How old were you when you shot Standing Firm? Oh, gosh, uh, trying to... I remember the ages. It's just, it's such a blur because of how long the movie took. <laughs> yeah. I think I think I started started writing it while I was eighteen, and then I think I started shooting it just after my nineteenth birthday or just before my nineteenth birthday, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then it came out. You know, it took a number of years to actually finish. So, <laughs> so I was I was young. I'll put it that way. I was very very young. That was my recollection, and I think that is a tremendous that you had the gumption and the will and the want to and all that to tackle that kind of a project at at that age. Of course, there are a lot of young filmmakers out there, and I think with technology where it is now, it makes it maybe a little bit easier to get started at a younger age, maybe, than it would have been 20 years ago when access to the equipment would have been much more difficult to come by. But even so, I think it's impressive that you started at the age of 18 or 19 and produced a feature film, and it turned out to be incredibly successful, much more so, as you say, than you even imagine. To your point about you know technology making this uh, easier and more accessible, I think that it's actually, it feels like a new universe compared to when I made Standing Firm, and it wasn't that long ago. It's about six years shot Standing Firm and only four years ago since it came out, but so much has happened since then that, I mean, gosh, if I had some of the things that are out today when I made Standing Firm, it would have been even easier. So technology moves really, really fast. To that point, can you give us a couple of examples of what you're referring to? Well, we started shooting in June 2008, and that was right when the 5D Mark II had come out. But it still had 30p video. It didn't have the 24p update yet. But even so, that's when that that was like right at the edge of the DSLR revolution. Had I shot the film a year later or something like that, and I had known about the 5D and the 24p update had been out, I probably would have used that on the movie as opposed to what I did use. Um, so I, I shot. It was kind of like the last movie that that I'll ever do the way that I did. And uh, it was just before the DSLR thing took off where, you know, that put really, really nice quality video in the hands of a lot of different people. So did you shoot uh, Love Covers All, the current film on a DSLR or some other format? I shot on the uh, Canon C300, which is the Canon's kind of higher end camera slash DSLR combo where it's not a DSLR, but they used a lot of the the, uh, the things that people like about shooting with them, and, and that made a professional camera around that. So that's what we used on the movie. Well, it looks fantastic. I had an opportunity to screen the film or, or watch a screener online over the weekend, and the look is is fabulous. Yeah, it's a great camera. I mean, it's 
you know, cameras are, they're, they're a dime a dozen now. I mean, there's just options everywhere. I'm not really, I used to debate a lot more about cameras and codecs and just all these geeky things, but there's so many options today that it's really, it's just pick the one that you like because there's so many. There's just an, an insane amount of choices. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, Kyle, when I was thinking about you shooting in this digital realm, 10 years ago, I guess, maybe at, even, if you were going to shoot your film, you either would have had to rent a camera package or maybe you would have had your own 16 millimeter rig. It, you certainly probably wouldn't have had a 35 millimeter rig if you were shooting film. You would have rented that camera package and you would have had to figure that into your budget and, and all that. Whereas now, it seems to me, if I'm right, one of the things you've done, and it seems to be really smart, is that once you're finished with production, you don't hang on to that gear. You try and sell it off and so that you're not completely behind the curve on the next thing coming technologically. Is that right? Right. I mean, in, on this movie, I did. I purchased uh, the C300 that we shot the film with, but that was because I had other plans for it. But it saved me money on the production side, being able to rent out my camera, you know, as, as I was paying it off, use it on a couple shoots and things like that. You know, I probably, I think I totaled it up, uh, totaled it up and saved about 3500 bucks, 3600 bucks from my movie budget by using my own equipment without renting it to myself, or I would have paid myself a fee. So it, you know, it helped me put money that I was able to raise somewhere else because I had the, I had the camera equipment that I needed. Right. And you can recapture some of that. I guess you're trying to sell that camera now, or maybe you've already sold it. I saw something online recently where you were making that camera available. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to see if anybody would like it. I mean, I love the camera. I don't have as much of a use for it now, um, but it keeps making me money from rentals. So as long as it keeps bringing in enough rentals to uh, even out or profit on top of how much it depreciates over time, then I'll then I'll keep it because it's uh, it's still it brings in a really great rental rate. So that that's helpful. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, I think there's some things in there that other filmmakers can take advantage of too. And maybe they're, you know, maybe they're way ahead of the curve. But to me, that just sounds like smart business. So well, and I, and I think I think. Uh, you know, today, like I said, there's so many options. If somebody was making a super low budget movie, I mean, I use the C300 because we shot so much at night and that camera had low light advantages. We still used lights and stuff, but it was going to be a cleaner low light image than I would have gotten with something else. But I mean, now you have things like the black magic cameras and the pocket camera. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really is. One of the things I talk about a lot to actors on this podcast is not waiting around for someone to give you permission to act, go out and create content. And if you're not a writer, team up with one of your buddies or friends or find a writer. There is so much available in terms of equipment that is affordable. Really, it just makes it imperative that actors or other creators can get out and do short films or other projects. They don't have to sit around and just wait for someone to call and give them permission to hone their craft. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's give people an idea of the space that you work in. What what do we call your market area that you're creating content for? I, I'm still confused about, uh, you know, is it family, faith and family, faith-based film, Christian film? What the, what the heck do we call it or do we need to call it something? Well, it's basically the, the name for what I what market I'm in is basically the CBA market, which is the Christian Bookstore Association. I mean, why people call it CBA is a little bit of a mystery to me, but 
it, it's kind of an all-encompassing code that people use or abbreviation for what the Christian retail market is. So that would include Lifeway, Family Christian Stores, you know, movies that are made specifically for the Christian and faith audience. Now that includes faith and family, you know, some family movies that aren't really faithy, but they kind of fit into that family-friendly thing. They get thrown into that group. But, you know, either way, the market that I'm working in is is making products for the faith audience specifically. Okay, and you stayed true to that with Love Covers All. Was was That was your intention, I guess, then, to stay within that market and not do something that would lose the audience goodwill that you had built up. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Christian market is a niche, just like, you know, low-budget horror is a niche, and certain kinds of comedy are a niche. The market out there is split up into a, you know, a number of different categories. And there's a certain audience that like these kinds of movies, you know, granted, I think there's a way to give them something a little bit better than what they typically get and still satisfy the buyer. And that was part of my goal on Love Covers All, but I'm still working within that space and trying to tap into that audience. Well, give us an idea of what Love Covers All is about. What's the story there? The very basic plot idea is a guy who has a baby due really quickly gets called to go out of state for a business meeting and his wife goes into labor early, forcing him to come back home and he gets stranded at a gas station in the middle of nowhere on his way home. And the movie's about his kind of his interaction with this stranger that he bumps into in his situation. Not being there for the birth and trying to get home to her is putting him to the test. How does that affect his interaction with this guy? So that's that's the basic idea. And when I heard the title Love Covers All, my first thought was, oh, this sounds like something I would I might see on the Hallmark Channel. Is that something you like to hear or does that bother you at all? Because that that's sort of where that's immediately sort of placed it for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the title and the packaging and, you know, some of the different elements of how it's presented has a lot to do with what market it's for. The movie from the outside is going to look like a certain thing, you know, to certain people. It, it was made for a specific audience, meaning the faith audience. So there are plenty of folks that are going to look at it from the packaging and the title, and it's going to bring certain things to mind that aren't for them. Uh, and that's okay. But from what I've seen of people that have seen it and the reviews that have come in, you know, the goal was to make something that could be enjoyed by someone who probably wouldn't be the one taking it off a shelf. But it would also satisfy the people that would be attracted to those elements. So it's it's not trying to hit like in the middle somewhere or or end up in no man's land that happens so much with some films. It's definitely for a certain kind of buyer primarily. But the content, what's actually in the movie, if someone picks it up, is a little bit different. But it still satisfies what the market wants and what the tastes are. So it's, it's trying to not scoot a line, but... Uh, I definitely understand why you would say what you said about it, and that's actually intentional. A lot of the Hallmark Hall of Fame type films that I've seen over time are quite good. Some of them are ones that more appeal to a female audience, some appeal to male and female, but you can always rely on it being good quality. Yeah, and I think part of the idea was to appeal to that buyer and yet give them something better than what they might normally see. You know, So going after the Christian movie buyer, but with the story and the characters and the structure of it and, and the honesty that I was trying to portray, that was what was different. You know, that I had tried to make something that was counter market and opposite of what you'd normally get and at the same time appeal to the same buyer. And it was hard to do, but a lot of that does come down to title and packaging. 
right? And, yeah. and the marketing of it. Um, so it's not deceptive marketing. It's it's very clear about what the movie is and it's honest about it. It's just once someone sits down to watch it, they're going to get something a little different than maybe what they were thinking. So hopefully, I mean, based on what I've seen, it's actually it, it is working. It's actually working. It's being enjoyed by the buyer who would normally buy these movies, and yet it's being enjoyed by people who are looking for something a little bit better, and they're not really the Christian movie buyer. And where will people be able to either get a DVD or will it be available as uh, digital downloads as well? How can people consume it? It'll be, it'll be on DVD in family Christian stores. It'll be um, available online on DVD. So all the typical avenues, christianbook.com, Amazon, you know, places like that. I'm in the process of getting it on iTunes and Amazon VOD for release day. Um, but I'm, I'm also providing for the first time, this is the first time I've ever done this, my own digital download service through uh, VHX, which is a really, really nice platform that I hope I can uh, uh, benefit from and the people who want to buy the movie. There'll be links to all of these places in the show notes at actorstalkpodcast.com. So if you're listening to this in your car or running or at the gym or something, don't worry about trying to keep up with it, just go to actorstalkpodcast.com and there'll be links to all of the places that uh, you'll be able to go find the movie Love Covers All. Well, let's talk a little bit about some things that might be instructive to other filmmakers as well. Your, Your first film you did when you were very young, it took a while to get completed, but it was very successfully marketed. What kind of things did you take into this new project that were influenced by what you learned on your first project? In other words, were there some things you said okay, I learned a lesson there. I'm going to do this or that differently. Do you want to talk first about the film itself or do you want to talk about the business side? Oh, let's talk about the film. Okay. Well, for the film, I laid out certain goals in my mind before I put a single you know, word down uh, of the script about what I wanted to improve on specifically. You know, What were my goals? And those were, I wanted to improve in, in, in a few key areas. The other areas were important and they needed to be successful. But if I was going to really set specific goals. There were going to be better story structure, better characters, deeper characters, better dialogue, more realistic dialogue, more, more honest dialogue, and then overall performance. So how, how all of that stuff is performed, much higher quality acting. There was an authenticity that I was trying to strive for this time. And that was, that was really the main thing. I noticed because I follow you on Facebook it's my recollection that you started off and you thought you had a script that you wanted to do and you wrote on it for a while and you came back and said, you know what, that's, that's not working. I don't want to do that. We're going in a different direction. So how long did it take you in the development process of actually honing in on telling this story? Uh, it took quite a while. I mean, I had, I had a number of different ideas that popped up and, you know, you kind of get sucked into the into the vacuum sometimes when you, uh, when, when you find a story that sounds like it'll work out and then it just doesn't. But I had thought of the base idea for this movie before I'd actually quote committed, you know, to this other project or those other projects that didn't pan out. It took a while for me to realize, I don't exactly know the date, but once I realized and and was able to get kind of a, a connection to this story, I just kind of ran with it. Well, it seems to have worked out quite well. You know, you mentioned the performance uh, aspect of the production is one of the things you wanted to make sure was improved in this production. 
it's my recollection, and again, I may be wrong in this, but that the cast of Standing Firm was really no no uh, slight intended, but it was an amateur cast. Sure. I don't believe there were professional actors, at least at the time, who were carrying the bulk of the acting work in that film. Is that correct? Completely volunteers. And, uh, you know, I mean, my mom was in the movie, for goodness sake. You know, it was a <laughs> volunteer cast. And here's and the thing is, is that they wouldn't they wouldn't scoff at that. They'd go, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing and we were just trying. And uh, everybody learned a lot in the process. And I think we we got a few moments that were actually pretty surprising for for what we had to work with and they thought so too <laughs> they did well but i can say that one of the biggest uh, differences between that film and this is the quality of performance you could really tell the difference when you had some experienced actors uh, professional actors in many cases to uh carry the water there it really made a tremendous difference how much of a difference did that make in your work as director on set was it a lot easier for you i assume it was but uh, how did that change what you did as a director i mean it changed everything you know i'm really really proud of of the work that everybody did and finally i feel like on this movie got to experience what it's like to be a director director like you know, doing what, doing what you would normally do on a set. This was kind of the first time I got to really experience that because the last movie was so, you know, impromptu and we couldn't get, at least until the end of the process, then we got much better. But like we were shooting line for line type of stuff and just trying to get certain pieces right. And I would have to edit the performance together later. Not this movie. This was, this was a much more standard production process. I had actors that were really good who were prepared, who were willing to talk and chat. And I felt much more comfortable on set because they were there to bring their A game and they, and they loved the script too. So they were invested on set every day. I was just really, really happy with what we were getting and they were doing just a fantastic job. So it made my job easier. What was your initial shooting schedule? How many days did you have budgeted to shoot? We shot 19 days. I believe we had 20 scheduled or maybe 21 or something, and we were able to, to shave some off. One of the, uh, you know, I, I talked earlier about, you know, film and then business side, you know, or if you want to call it more director side and producing side. Yeah. One of the other major goals in mind that, in, that you know, kind of connects to all this is I wanted the set to run a certain kind of way, you know, a way that it didn't run last time. I wanted people to be uh, treated really, really well, paid what they asked for uh, as, as long as we were able, good food, not crazy long hours, wanted everybody to get sleep. I wanted to get sleep. You know, I mean, we could have shot this movie a lot shorter than 19 days. We could have shaved a few more days off and made the days longer, but I didn't want to do that. You know, that's just not what I wanted to do as a producer. There was an integrity goal in mind on this set, um, not just by the way people were going to treat each other, but how we were going to treat them based on how we budgeted and based on how we set everything up. So it was, and, and I'm pleased to say that everything went exactly as planned. Everything went exactly how I was hoping it was going to. Everybody left happy and shaking hands and hugging. And, you know, I, I made sure that I talked to everyone individually before they left and said, look, tell me, please, honestly, look me in the face and tell me that, you know, you're satisfied. And, and that's, I, I got great responses across the board. And I heard later, you know, people told me again, just what a great time they had. And that was really important to me. Even if the movie itself didn't turn out the way that I was hoping from a director standpoint or a writing standpoint, that would be my fault anyway. But even if it didn't work out, 
perfectly, I wanted to make sure that no matter what, people were treated well. And, and I'm pleased to say that, that that happened. Well, from an actor's point of view, you know, actors love to hear things like that because that's the kind of environment that you want to work in, that you feel uh, creative in, and that you're not tense. And, you know, these certain types of situations can add tension to the whole process. And tension is one of an actor's worst enemies. So that sounds great. Yeah. There's getting a movie finished and then there's getting a movie finished well in the right way, you know, and I think people when they're treated well and they feel like they're respected from and and that goes from the from the most experienced actor we have all the way down to a PA or or someone at, you know, quote at the bottom. To me there's just there's no bottom. Everyone's essential, everyone's a critical piece of the process and uh and everybody does their best work when they're in that kind of environment. Did you shoot a number of nights? Yeah, most most were nights. I mean, you get again, that was another reason to do things the way we did. If you're doing nights, it's even harder. So shooting days that were more like eight hour, ten hour days, not twelve or fourteen or you know these insane kind of days that people you you know have on indie sets. Um, I knew that even I was I wasn't going to be able to function under that. So um, we we made sure to. <laughs> take care of everyone and in light of how many night days we had or night shoots we had and uh, everything went fine. You know, my impression, one of my impressions after our, our first interview a couple of years ago is, and I hope we don't take this the wrong way, but it was that you were a guy who really wanted to control everything, everything on, (laughs) on the production. And I remember thinking at the time, well, you know, film filmmaking is supposed to be collaborative. And on this project, I see where you were much more collaborative. You had a DP, for instance, and other people in, in charge of other departments. Was that difficult for you or did you actually end up finding that freeing as a director? It was it was great. I mean, it's what I needed. You know, on the last movie so much was done out of necessity where there wasn't anybody else around who had the knowledge to do the other things. So it was either it was going to be a disaster or I had to grab it myself and and manage it and micromanage where need be sometimes to the peril of other people. But again, there was just nobody there to do it besides me. So this movie, it was purposefully done so that that wasn't the case. It was like bringing in people who, who are good at what they do, who are excited to do what they're doing, um, who I can trust to give that job away because they're good at what they do. Picking the right people was essential, and not just people who were good at what they do, but also had the right kind of personality and had the right you know demeanor. They weren't, they didn't have a temper. Even if they were fantastic or better than the next person, right? That was another option. They just the fact that they were maybe going to be a much nicer person, possibly on set, is why they got chosen. So I was happy to give away a lot of different things because I needed it. You know, I wanted to be able to focus on, on other stuff. I still, I was still the producer and I was still the director on the day, but you know, other than that, everything else got taken away. DP especially was like, absolutely. I don't want to touch. I don't even want to touch a camera. (laughs) I don't want to be anywhere near a camera. I just want to be in front of my monitor with my script supervisor or talking to my actors or talking to my AD you know, if we have some sort of issue we need to handle. Other than that, I don't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) Well, I can tell you it worked out well because the DP did a great job. The sound is outstanding, which is always one of the things that, you know, is one of the big bugaboos in any kind of indie film is it's so often there are sound issues and your sound was, was terrific. All of that worked out well. 
Did when you selected your DP, how did you select your DP? Did you get people to send you reels or was this someone you knew or is it someone who had familiarity with a camera you were going to use? How did that process work itself out? Ethan Ledden was my DP. He was part of kind of the film weavers crew. Uh, Nathan Webster was my UPM and Dustin Ledden, Ethan's brother, was my AD. So I kind of hired them as a as a unit because they've worked together before and they're, you know, they're, they're good at working together. And Ethan, and I had gotten to know a little bit more in the last few years and liked his work and he was available. And, uh, we just, we had a good, um, I mean, communication is the one thing that a director and a DP have to have. It has to be good. It has to, there has to be an understanding. You can't butt heads all the time and that's just never going to work. And I, and I had that with, uh, with Ethan, I had a great, you know, line of communication, I could tell that on the day there wasn't going to be any arguing. We were going to understand each other and it was just going to be smooth. So, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I I had conversations with Ethan, but they were very brief and it was very simple. And uh, it, it was almost like he was a ghost, <laughs> you know, uh, on, on the set, not because he didn't want to interact, but because things just went so smoothly. Well, that's, that's outstanding. Tell me something about your cast, your main cast. Who were your actors and how did you select them? Was there a casting process or did you just make offers to people? How did that work out? I saw a short film called Elijah, two of the main actors in my movie. Jared Young and Jennifer Mercurio played a couple in that short. And it was a very, very, very emotional uh, short film. But I saw their chemistry and they were the first two that I saw that I was like, hmm, you know, if... If I'm going to cast a couple, it's great to see a couple that looks like it's working, or at least there's a potential, right, for for there to be something workable here based on what I saw. So I got a hold of both of them, and uh, and and that's kind of what started that process. So that was just kind of a um, I I had known Jared uh, and kind of met him in the area a little bit before that. So seeing that short was was kind of the first thing that that tipped me off to their their chemistry. Um, we, I did do some casting call type things where I asked people to send in auditions and stuff like that. And I, you know, I had quite a few, I mean, the casting process was a little rushed on the movie. Uh, everything worked out fine, but you know, pre-pro is something that I want to have even more time on the next film just because it, it helps so much in getting yourself prepared and finding the right people. But we kind of did a combo of different things. So some of it was through connections that I already had. Some of it was someone that I thought of that I thought would be great. And I just got a hold of them. And then other times it was, uh, you know, kind of by chance, you know, showing up and seeing that short film on, on YouTube, you know, at one point. So. Well, now my question is, do you and Jared look similar to each other in person? Because <laughs> when I look at the pictures, I go, well, Kyle, cast someone to be his surrogate in this film you, you guys have a similar look with the beard to me yeah that's that's something <laughs> i get a lot i mean if you saw us both in person you'd go wow okay never mind they uh -huh. don't you know i mean i just think we both have a uh a more rugged appearance and he definitely he kind of has a similar body type we're kind of stocky and stuff but very different body language and stuff like that so if people actually saw us in person uh, they'd they'd go no way but i feel like the memory of what kyle is <laughs> seems to remind people uh of what jared looks like but uh i mean looking back the one the one change i probably would have made is i probably would have had him trim his beard down a little bit because he looks very different when it's not as long but like it was just one of those things in the in the you know the insanity before starting a film that just 
you know, didn't happen. I never gave it a thought, really. Uh, and I have a small cameo in the movie because we didn't have anybody to do that part. And it was uh, on the day, I literally was like, oh, man, there's a scene here. And all three people in the scene have a beard. Like, that's not going to work. That's going to be ridiculous. So I, I literally ran, I rushed home from set and and shaved immediately, which I, I had not seen my face, I kid you not, in two years. I mean, I, I didn't even know what was under there. Uh, and I mean, it, there could have been a, a tan line, you know, where my beard ended for all I know. I mean, it, it could have been a disaster, oh, hilarious, uh, but yeah. I, I shaved and, uh, and, and looked in the mirror and was horrified, but I went to set <laughs> and, uh, and, and did the, you know, did that part. And what's hilarious to me is that a lot of people have no idea it's me because I look like a, I look like a chubby 12 year old. I have to say when I saw the credits. I went, well, wait a minute. I don't remember Kyle being in this movie. I'll have to go back and look again. So. I'm glad that I'm I'm there and gone very quickly. Okay, Mr. Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned something a minute ago about getting some video auditions. And I don't know how many of those you got. Did you, did you, did you accept some video auditions? Was I... Did I hear that, that correctly? Was, that was the requirement, actually. As I, you know, I, we sent out, you know, the different uh, chunk of a scene for someone to do, and they sent it in via YouTube or a, you know, a QuickTime or something like that. Um, what, what's interesting is the guy that plays Bob Rusty Whitener was cast. I mean, that role was the hardest one to cast. It was super crucial. We didn't know where to find the right person, and he was the last audition I watched. That just shows you that, you know, you never know, just send it in because I was fed up. I was, you know, feeling terrified that we were not going to cast this person. We were starting at the gas station, so I really needed it. And I knew in five seconds that he was the right person. Uh, So, you know, the video auditions are very useful. Well, let's help the actors who are listening. Are there some tips you could give to the actors? Because a, a lot of us are doing video auditions now. Almost everything I get now is an audition to be sent to Atlanta or New Mexico or somewhere. It's not not here in town. You know, I think as an actor, you have to also consider not just your ability to become a character, but you do have to consider the things that you can't change either at all or easily. Things like your appearance that just might not fit, you know, um, you know, you could, uh, I mean, like me, for instance, I shaved my beard off. I look like a totally different person. So, you know. The the thing that got Rusty the part was not just that he did a great job and he had a great kind of take on what the guy should sound like, but his whole look was already complete. He was in the right kind of clothing, which I think he did on purpose, he kind of had a little bit of a bummy shirt on that fit the part, kind of rugged clothing. He had a rag in his hand, I believe, that he kind of used as a prop um, just to kind of wipe his hands. He had his hair all rugged. Uh, and a little bit of scruff on his face. So, you know, it, it was just, I knew immediately, as soon as I opened the video, oh gosh, as long as what comes out of this guy's mouth is great, like he's already got it because I don't have to do a thing beyond working with him on the performance. Like he's already got the look that I need is exactly what I needed. So I think as an actor with auditions, you do have to consider, sometimes it's not that you necessarily did anything wrong. You know, sometimes it's just, you just don't look the part no matter what comes out of your mouth. So, you know, there were a couple of people that auditioned for the part that had, you know, a, a fine take on the character, had a, had a good voice and things like that. But when you looked at them, it's just, it's not what you picture. So, I mean, there's an the opportunity for somebody to surprise you and give you a different angle on something that maybe you didn't, you know, think of before. 
and and then maybe you do get the part. But I feel like odds are, especially with a character like Bob in the script, I you know everybody that read the script had a certain thing in mind, and when they saw what Rusty looked like along with his tape, they were they were all in. Pursuing this just for a minute, were there any things just from a technical point of view that if the actor were doing a video audition, you would have wanted to tell that actor, you know, don't do that, whether it's the the camera angle, uh, being too far away from camera, too close up, the sound level, not being able to see the face. Did you have people who read their scenes as opposed to people who had the scene memorized? And did that make a difference? Those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think for sure there's certain, there's a, there's a certain amount of that that matters where if, if you put your camera in a place where I just can't see you that well, well then, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell what I'm going to get on the day. So, you know, putting the camera where I can clearly see your face, um, don't do it in a wide, you know, do it in a medium or a close up or just something that really lets me see what's most important. That's your eyes. You know, I need to see your eyes. I need to see, um, your mouth clearly, you know, uh, if you, if depending on the scene, you know, if it's a really intense scene that requires a, a lot of nuance, then maybe a close up is better. But if it's in a medium where I can at least see you from the waist up, then I can get a sense of your body language and get a sense of how you move and how you sit, or at least how you see the character kind of, you know, holding right. themselves. So, um, yeah, and you know, audio. It's like Rusty's audition, for instance, didn't have great audio, but it wasn't. Be- it wasn't so awful that I couldn't get right. what I needed. Uh, so let me ask you this, and, and we're sort of nearing the end of our time, and I, I want to ask you a little bit about distribution. But one other uh, thing that I wanted to ask was when you were preparing your uh, film in pre-production, was there a scene or a sequence that you thought, mm, boy, this one, this is going to be tough. We really have to nail this right, either because of a location that you might not have a lot of access to or a time commitment or just a scene that was difficult to shoot. And did it work out? To, to be a challenge on set or did it work out to be easier than you thought or was there anything like that at all? I mean, I just Yeah, I mean, there, there are moments uh, in the film that were especially important to me um, where I knew that, you know, you, you mess up the scene, you really, you, you don't break the whole movie, but you certainly heard it a lot. Uh, you know, you, you've seen the film, so you know that there's some, I mean, the film is extensive dialogue. It's uh, it's it's all about the batting of the back and forth between the main character and this other guy. So it's like a, watching a game of chess, you know, or something like that verbally as they throw stuff back. So every uh, every scene's important, obviously, but there were a few key ones where uh, I was definitely nervous. But again, you know, on set because things were running so well, we really were able to take the time and and Jared and Rusty were so prepared that uh, it really went very smoothly. I mean, the one scene that I'll mention specifically that um, it's really important to me, it actually, I wrote it super close to the production period, or I might have written it sometime into the production period, which is the scene of Rusty playing Bob where he's in a close-up the entire time. Do you remember that scene in front of the map? Yes, yes. that, That scene... That's one of those things that like you don't know where that came from. It just kind of flowed out and, and ended up the way it was on the page. And I just knew that this was going to be a real opportunity for Rusty to do something special and for a scene to do something that I mean, these movies just don't do this. We did, you know, nobody holds a shot that long in mm-hmm. these films. They just they feel like you gotta cut. Don't cut away, you know, 
oh man, cut to the other face, you know, or something like that, either because the acting's bad or because we just feel like we have to cut. It was an opportunity for writing and performance to be the only thing holding the scene together. And that was, that was a wonderful thing because it was a challenge for me. It was a challenge for Rusty. And it was really special on the day because he just knocked that thing out of the park multiple times over. And I just remember staring at my monitor going, you know, this is a scene, regardless of how the movie turns out, like, I'm going to remember this scene. Like, this will be one that I, I, I'm really proud of regardless. And I'll look back on. Um, so well, he's quite good throughout the film. So yeah, he he did a very very nice job. I mean, all your, all your acting was really was really good. I mean, that really is. If I would point to one difference between the two films, the quality of performance was so far raised in this film is that it, it really was striking. Well, and I didn't get a chance. Quick, I'll I'll mention the other actors that I had. Uh, Rhoda Griffiths. Uh, it was wonderful. She played the, uh, the mom in the film and she, she's, she had more credits on her list than anybody else. Uh, she's worked on a lot of different things and is very experienced. And, uh, she was wonderful to work with as well. Just very funny and kept everybody in stitches on set, which is always great when you're getting tired or, you know, when you're shooting at night. Um, and then, um, we had Jason Berkey, which we only had him for a day. I had to, I had to, we shot all of his scenes and, a few different locations in a single day. So that was tough, but we were able to get him and it was really, really fun to work with professional showed up, did his job and had a good time. And then we had Michael Joyner, which his, his one scene is one that I wrote specifically for him. I called him. He said, yes, immediately. I flew him in for one day, gave him a hotel room and he uh, came in, did great, made everybody laugh a lot <laughs> and went home. And, uh, and then we had Rusty Martin uh, senior, who uh, you'd recognize from Courageous and some other uh, Faith movies coming out. But he came in and did a really great job as well. I, I just thought that he had um, such a fatherly tone of voice and demeanor, just a maturity uh, that worked really well. And I, you know, I was happy to have him. Uh, and then his son, uh, Rusty Martin Jr., has a cameo as well, similar to Michael Joyner's, that, uh, that uh, was, was really fun to shoot. And he just came down for a day as well. They drove down, he did his scene. After he was done, he went and kind of slept in the truck while his dad did his one scene that night, and then they drove back to uh, North Carolina. Where was the film shot? Every location of the film was within 15 minutes of my house. I'm in Flowery Branch, Georgia, which is a, a kind of rural area about a, an hour northeast of Atlanta. Um, so everything was local. The hotel was local. The gas station was close. The, uh, we actually shot at a church that doubled for the hospital. Um, and then we shot in my home. Um, the, the, uh, office that the gas station has in the back, you know, when they kind of walk back to the office area, um, that's actually in my basement right next door to where I am right now, uh, that we, that we, you know, dress to look that way. They walk out of frame or walk in one dark door, or walk in another, you don't have a clue. So, you know, it's interesting what you can do. I mean, we didn't have to travel all over the place. Did you try to get an operating room and just couldn't do it? It's interesting because we used that, uh, that church nearby and they had this perfect hallway, first of all, that was green and had the right kind of tiling on the floor. And, you know, we were able to, you know, double that as kind of hospital sure. hallways and 
shoot it from different angles and stuff to make it look like more hallway, um, which was, you know, that was kind of confusing sometimes. But And then they had this this kind of pastor's waiting area. It was kind of the place where after service, that's where the pastor would be to talk to anyone. And it had kind of coffee tables and stuff in it. And it was the right size for a delivery room. So we pulled everything out of that. And uh, Nathan Webster, my UPM, and Johnny Reichard, who was my production designer, had to go out and figure out, okay, well, where do we get all this equipment stuff? And because we're in Atlanta, um, tons of TV and film shoot here. So there's a warehouse that's like the size of a Sam's Club that these people own, and all they have is medical stuff. It's just, I mean, aisles and aisles of beds and IV bags and machinery and just all sorts of crazy stuff. So that was honestly the most expensive expenditure on the movie from a rental standpoint um, in terms of props or anything that was, it was quite expensive to get the bed and the, you know, the different equipment, but the room looked great. I mean, nobody, nobody gave it a second thought when I've told people it's a church and not a hospital. They're like, what, you know, really? So it, it worked out well. Let's talk about quickly about where you came up with the money. Did you have investors? Was it self-funded? Was it profits from uh, your first film? How did you come to raise the money to do this picture? The fundraising process is always honestly really awful and difficult. Uh, it's, it's, uh, if you look up just a, as a quick side note, there's a, there's like a two hour long thing on YouTube from a, from a channel called film courage about financing, just put in like film courage financing it. <laughs> if you're feeling down about raising money, it, it's not necessarily going to make you feel better, but it won't make you feel alone. Uh, so that's, you know, go right. check that out. But, um, we, I mean, on the last movie, there was a guy that uh, has become a good friend. He came to my wedding and um, gotten to know him very well, an older guy. And uh, he came through a friend, another filmmaker friend. And on the last movie, kind of as a Hail Mary, he put in like five grand. And I needed it at a very like critical moment, and he gave it. And uh, just as kind of a courtesy, I gave him back a lot more money than he, I really had to, just because I was so thankful that he kind of saved my butt. And uh, I gave him 7500 back, and I gave it to him actually in only like, I think, a couple weeks or something. It was less than that. So he gave me money and got it back with a really substantial profit pretty quickly. And I went back to him on this movie to let him know what I was doing. And, you know, I had kept contact, and he was the main uh, investor on the film. Had I not had him, there would be no movie because he put in the majority of what we spent. So, you know, you just, that just shows you that the relationships you build, treating people right, you know, sometimes, you know, even being generous can really help you uh, when the time comes to raise financing. And we, you know, I got some, some, a couple donations from online that, that helped in a, you know, small area. And then another friend that put in a small amount. And did you do a crowdfunding campaign on this? I did, and it failed um, because it, for multiple reasons, wasn't prepared, bad timing during the summer. It was just a disaster. I didn't know where I was going to get the money. I was still talking to this other guy. I mean, basically, we got just enough money to pay everybody else but me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, everybody got paid what they needed to get paid and were happy and, you know, and we got right. the movie done. But I've yet to actually make anything right. from the film. Well, of course, money is always the big bugaboo, and, and it doesn't matter if you're doing an a ultra-low-budget movie or a big-budget movie. I mean, money is hard to come by, so it's always, I think, interesting for people to know, 
you know, what are the struggles and how did you overcome those struggles? And um, so that's that's why I asked the question. I was looking on Facebook today, Kyle, and I was looking at your praise pictures Facebook page, and you have almost seven hundred thousand likes. You you know that seems almost unbelievable to me, and I don't know how long it's taken you to get that. But is there a way, and are you able, or is someone else able, another filmmaker following along here, are are you able to somehow take all of those people who have hit liked on Facebook and either build an email list or some sort of a, a resource where you can market directly to them, either obviously on your Praise Pictures page, but in some other way uh, besides. Do you have, are you able to capture those uh, those people that are behind those likes? Um, I'm not really able to capture them directly, um, outright. I mean, I, I use that page to do a lot of the marketing. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's about 700,000 people on that page, most of whom are, are Christian market people and buyers. And, uh, you know, every single, I mean, the reach, the total reach weekly on that page averages anywhere between four and a half million to 10 million at wow. a peak. So it's, it's, I mean, I keep it very healthy and I have for, for a long time and it's exploded in the last year or so. Um, but it's, it's difficult to build and I've had it for quite a while as well. So it's, I mean, I think that page is more six right. years old. I've had it for is quite a while. Is that the same page you had when you were when you were doing standing firm because back when i remember when i first looked at your page i think it had 200,000 likes or something well now, now it's half a million more yeah it was the standing firm page was that page and um i was able to put in a name change request which was really nerve-wracking because they could turn it down and I did not want to, I didn't want to start a new page for my new movie. I realized that, you know, I had this great resource right here that I've been working on, trying to cultivate that while cultivating a brand new page from scratch when I have limited time and I'm turning the movie around in a year, just didn't sound, you know, not, not only not possible, but just not sure. smart. So I put in the name change request and thankfully they accepted it. So now that is the main brand page for the company and that's what I'm going to use unless I make a really big movie where I have the money to cultivate from scratch. Um, that's going to be what I use from now on for a lot of these a lot How of these How important movies. is that page in those 700,000 uh, people that are that are represented by those likes? How important is that to your overall marketing strategy? Uh, tremendously important. I mean, it's, it's the center of it really. Uh, it, I, you know, no, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying this as a, a, you know, puffing myself up thing. I'm just, I'm just stating what is, is there isn't a direct to video, uh, movie coming out that has that kind of, you know, pull on, on right. social media. They just don't exist. So, uh, you know, having as many fans as, you know, a lot of theatrical movies do is very helpful uh, for, for me. And I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to use it as much right. as I can, you know, cause just because it's there, you know, and it, it's, it's a part-time job at least keeping a page like that healthy and active. You don't, it's not like an email list. You don't just post and people see it. You know, you have to really, really build a relationship with people, um, in order for it to work. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using it a lot ongoing, to uh, to market the movie and and uh, get a hold of people. Well, I I did an episode a few months ago with Linda Nelson uh, on video on demand, and one of the things that she talked about was having 
a robust fan page before you start, uh, even even actually before you do your movie, you know, and then leveraging that as you go forward to help attract some uh, distribution entity uh, to your project because they're really going to be attracted by someone who has a built-in fan base. And, and that is, uh, you know, when you see 700,000 likes as, you know, you, you realize that's, that's a lot of folks there that are potential customers for your film. Right. And I, and I will say though, I mean, on this movie, cause you'd mentioned distribution earlier, um, you know, even having that page doesn't help as much as really? you might think. You know, I mean, it, it helps, but it's not it's not necessarily the currency maybe that some people yeah. think it is. I mean, I think I think that some of that might have to do with um, just how I'm, I mean, since the last time we talked, I'll tell you the Christian market in just any market <laughs> out there is 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 way different. So it's it's a lot harder than it was even a year ago to get a movie like mine. Why is out that there. even a year ago? Uh, it's, I think it's, a. it's, there's no one answer to that. It's just the economy still, you know, VOD is taking over, streaming's taking over. Um, everybody's trying to figure out all this stuff. Every right. market is indie film in general is in a rough spot. You know, everything is, is changing. So, uh, and, and you, you have the rush of theatrical movies this year. So in terms of getting attention and getting press people and distributors to even bother to answer an email it's like well who cares about you <laughs> you know who cares when there's another theatrical coming out um and uh you know the the importance of box office even small box office for these movies is actually becoming more and more important so that's a lesson for me you know i, I wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to do theatrical on this one i could i could have if i had more time and i and i had um the the funding but Directed DVD was the right choice for this particular film, and I think it's going to do just fine. I made a film for a niche audience. I made it uh, specifically for them. They like it based on the response I'm getting so far. It's packaged for them. They even voted for what packaging they would get, and they liked it. Um, the The trailer was made for them. I casted people, tons of people from from multiple Christian movies of the last ten years. I turned it around in ten months. I did it for a budget that is less than half of what a lot of people would end up spending for the, to get the same product because I made it for free and I did most of the post-production. And yet, even having Standing Firm done and successful and did well at Redbox and all these other things, it's been really, really hard, even with that fan page and other things, you know, trying to get distributors to give you attention and, uh, and, and place your film is difficult. So... You know, it's a lot worse than people think <laughs> out there uh, right now. It's it's way different than it was when my last movie came out. Even though the like Standing Firm was a great success at Redbox, it was wonderful. I mean, it was the best success the movie had, really. And this last time, I couldn't I couldn't get them to say yes. I'm still talking to them, and we're going to try and do something for Valentine's Day. I hope, but you just never know what people are going to say yes or no to. You know, you never. It could be anything. It could be they're having a bad week. And they just don't want to talk to you. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, doing everything right. If, if you even do, I don't think I did everything right. But even if you do, it just it doesn't guarantee anything anymore. It's just a very volatile business to be in. It's ironic in that it's a lot easier to make product today. Technically, you know, if you just have, if you want, if you're really determined and you have certain resources, right, you could probably get a movie made, a small movie, 
and getting it out there available where people can see it is easy, right? Like YouTube or whatever. Like it's getting it out there, out there from a practical standpoint is simple, but out there financially is is just as hard, if not harder than it's ever been. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, obviously, next up on your plate is the release of this film and, and trying to get it into as many hands and homes as possible. So uh, tell us again when the release date is for Love Covers All. The release date for Love Covers All is October 7th. If you want to order it directly from praisepictures.com, that actually helps me a lot. I get higher margins on those sales. Um, but if you prefer to buy it somewhere else, it's totally fine. Family Christian stores will have it. Amazon will have it. Christianbook.com will have it. Christiancinema.com will have it. Uh, it'll be available in a lot of places online and in a few places um, in physical stores. But check the website, lovecoversallmovie.com for any relevant and updated okay, info. Okay, that's, that's great information, Kyle. Well, and the last question is, I know that this is occupying all of your energy right now, but what what is up next, or have you thought next, what's next beyond Love Covers All for Praise Pictures? Are you uh, already thinking about another film, or are you just taking a little time to, to get all of this uh, uh, squared away, or what's next for Praise Pictures? Uh, I actually have three uh, different projects that I'd like to do. They're all in varied uh, risk tiers. You know, they've been budgeted and uh, and um, created story-wise and message-wise specifically for the right audience. You know, I'd like to do each one, obviously, but uh, that's the first time I've ever been in that position where I'm really sure that I want to make these three movies, but they're in different budget levels and just not knowing which one is going to hit. So right now, I'm ba- I'm basically back into the financing mode where... Um, I need to do things differently this time. If there's one piece of advice I could give to anybody listening who wants to be a filmmaker, it's that, you know, while you're young or you're not married or whatever, that's the time to give it a try uh, and try and get your foot in the door because it's just really hard to make these movies and not pay yourself. And uh, that's not an option. This was the last movie, talk, you know, talking directly to my wife. She was pregnant at the time. She was going to have the baby, our second baby. And it was like, are we going to do this? You know, and we decided to mutually, um, but it was going to be the last movie that I did this way. Uh, I won't make another movie without paying myself because it's just, quite frankly, it's just too difficult on your family. Uh, so I have three different projects. That's really the future. You know, I have a vision in mind of what I'd like to do as a company, how I want to treat people. You know, I want to put forth a standard of integrity, and I want um, I want my company to be known for authenticity in person and and our projects. So that's really the main thing to drive home is authenticity. Uh, so trying to find investors that are, you know, on board with that kind of mission, who want to be a part of something uh, hopefully special, is uh, is what I'm up to now. So we'll see what what God has in store for me. But you know, obviously, my focus day to day is trying to make sure that this movie is successful as best I can and. Uh, you know, I'm really, really encouraged by the reaction to it so far. It's been a real kick to watch your growth as a filmmaker from standing firm to love covers all. It's going to be even more fun to watch what you do going forward. And I, I just wish for you and hope for you and pray for you the greatest success for love covers all. I think your story and, and how you're operating can be a real inspiration to other filmmakers and people that want to be in the film business. And whatever aspect that is, whether they're actors or directors or writers or crew people. And I really appreciate you being on Actors Talk again. I appreciate it, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Take care. Once again, my thanks to Kyle Prohaska. Thanks, Kyle. 
always fun talking to you. We, we need to do this more than once every two years. So maybe do a, another film sooner and we'll talk about that one. <laughs> Kyle Prohaska, writer, producer, director, Love Covers All. Be sure and check the initial interview that Kyle and I did back in 2012. That was episode 15, actorstalkpodcast.com slash 015. You can find out a little more about Kyle and see where he was then and see where he is now from our discussion. This episode is 54, so it's actorstalkpodcast.com slash 54. Again, thanks. Kyle Prohaska, writer, producer, director, love covers all. Yep, yep, yep. I get to interview a lot of really cool, knowledgeable, interesting people here. And that's the fun part for me. And I hope it's the fun part for you as well. Oh, I almost forgot a film that I did earlier in the year, a short film, terrific film. I think it's going to be terrific. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's going to be terrific because Leanne Morris, who wrote it and produced it, has done such a fantastic job of just staying on the ball with this film and getting it through. It's a long process. This is a short film, and she's been working on this thing for a year or more, getting it all together and filmed and through the post-production process. The terrific composer, Jürgen Beck, has just released one music cue. It's kind of a teaser, and he did the musical score for the short film, and he is nothing short of fantastic. So I know that element alone is going to be one that you'll want to, to uh, check out. The film, again, is called Tattered Blanket. You can look for that on Facebook as well. Give us a like and look for that. I'll be letting you know when that's available. Well, that's all the news that I have. Thank you so much for joining me on Actors Talk. God bless you all in your journey, whether it's as an actor, filmmaker, or wherever, wherever you are. Maybe you're just a, someone who likes movies and you dropped in for that purpose. Well, thank you for doing that. Until next time, I hope to see you in the movies. This is Tommy. So long. God bless.